If you could have that passage uh, before you, Luke chapter 12, beginning from verse 13, that would be very helpful. And we come to a passage which I think is very challenging uh, if you are a Christian believer who want to follow the Lord Jesus. Those very difficult words of Jesus in verse 33 to his disciples, sell your possessions, give to the poor, provide purses for yourselves that will not wear out, and treasure in heaven (coughs) that will not be uh, exhausted. As a younger Christian, when I first came across those words, as a probably late teen, um, it disturbed me because I wanted to follow Jesus. I'd named him as my saviour and my lord. I was publicly saying my life is going to be in obedience to him. And then you get these cataclysmic verses saying, sell up everything and follow. What do you do with that? So we're going to come to that a little bit later on. If you're a believer in the Lord Jesus, I trust that you find these words of Jesus disturbing. Um, And I hope that I'll provide you with a way which doesn't leave us in the place where I was at for many, many years, which was saying, I know what the plain meaning of the words are. I don't have a clue how I can possibly do it. I don't see anybody else doing it. Am I going to just ignore it or live with a sort of guilty unease? That's not a spiritually healthy place to be. So I hope that by the end of today, you'll have a knowledge of what to do with these verses. How do we obey these verses today as 21st century Christians? If you're an unbeliever but are investigating the Christian faith, I hope that you will see that what Jesus commands his disciples to do here is motivated in them by wanting to to be part of something that is far greater than the material comforts that this world can bring and that that is actually worth striving for and living for. Now, the passage before it, which actually prompts Jesus to address his disciples and talk about what it means to follow him, um, is from... uh, presumably two brothers, but one of them speaks up and says, we're having a fight, a squabble, about the inheritance. Um, And they are addressing Jesus like uh, they would address a normal rabbi in the Jewish world. Um, They would pronounce on those sorts of family issues, bring the word of God to bear in practical areas of life. And uh, the disciples have just heard, uh, indeed the crowd has just heard, Jesus teaching about the persecutions that will come the way of those who follow Jesus. Really high bar setting by Jesus. If you're going to follow me, you're going to be persecuted. And there's this guy standing in the crowd who pipes up and all he can think about is his money. Presumably he hasn't got the better end of the the deal when the um, inheritance and the will was read and he found out he didn't get as much as he was expecting and he just wants Jesus to arbitrate. So he goes from Jesus teaching about high level, what does it cost to follow me, to almost a petty dispute about money. And Jesus, in a few verses, goes into effectively a diatribe against materialism. Now, I'm sort of expecting that if you're either a believer or not even a believer, just a normal person, not that believers aren't normal, but you know what I mean, that you would have found at one level yourself agreeing with Jesus. 
Because look, look what he says. I mean, he initially says, I'm not a judge. Uh, and then he warns them, verse 15, watch out, be on your guard against all kinds of greed. A man's life does not consist in the abundance of his possessions. Even though we're in the city of London, one of the financial centres of the world where wealth is all around, there are still very few people who would say that their life is totally and only defined by what they earn and their material goods. Yes, there are very wealthy people here who are striving for wealth, but very few are absolute crass materialists. So... Bob Geldof in this dates me when he had just done the first live aid concert in the 1980s. The greatest fundraising effort that had ever been done. He raised um, millions and millions of pounds in 24 hours. No one had ever done that before. And at the end of the last act, someone at the standing by the stage just asked the simple question, is that it? And I think all he was asking is, is that the end? And Bob Geldof in his autobiography said, that question has bothered me ever since. He said, I've just done the greatest charitable act that's ever been done by anybody in history, and yet there was still a sense of emptiness. If I've just raised money, that doesn't fulfill. You see, the world out there understands that materialism doesn't fulfill. So I wouldn't, I won't take a show of hands, but I'd be tempted to say, who found the beginning of this passage, this treatment that Jesus gives, of, of sets up almost a, a parody-like figure, a man who is, um, who only thinks about himself and his goods, that you almost find yourself saying, good on you, Jesus, I'm glad you said that, because I agree. I mean, look at the, um, the parable, this story that Jesus tells. He sets the man up as an extreme parody. He says, um, verse 16, he told him this parable, the ground of a certain rich man produced a good crop. He thought to himself, what shall I do? I have no place to store my crops. Then he said, this is what I'll do. I'll tear down my barns and build bigger ones. There I will store all my grain and my crops. And I'll say to myself, you have plenty of good things laid up for many years, take life easy, eat, drink, and be merry. Now, when I first read this, I actually counted the number of times the speaker in Jesus' parable uses the word I or my. He refers to himself eight times in a couple of sentences. Here is the most self-obsessed, self-focused person you're probably ever likely to meet. He's almost a parody of the person who just thinks about himself. He thinks that he's self-made. He says, look, he's had good crops and he takes responsibility for it. They're my crops. They grew well. I had more than I... I know what I'll do. I'll pull down my barns. I'll build bigger ones. I'll fill them. As if he is responsible for it all. As if he can control it all. You know he can't. And so Jesus then speaks of God saying in the parable, you fool, this very night your life will be demanded from you. You see, we cannot even control our next breath. There's no guarantee that each one of us now would not necessarily drop dead of a heart attack right now. Can you, can you stop that? You see, when we stop and think about our lives, we know we're not in control. We know that material goods don't make our, our, God, our life. We know that it's actually pretty ugly to be so self-obsessed that you just think about yourself and your own material provision. 
And so I suspect that that first teaching of Jesus we find at one level fairly easy to accept. Well, I want us now to have a closer look at Jesus' teaching. Because I'm going to suggest to you that our initial impressions of the easiness of the first passage to accept and the difficultness of the second passage to accept is actually the wrong way around. That Jesus is more tender and sympathetic to his disciples, even though he commands them, in this case, to sell everything and follow him, and that he sees ultimately that it's the issue of greed and covetousness is actually the greater danger that we all face. And I want to do that by having a close look at the text and seeing Jesus' um, attitude to his um, hearers, and then by standing back and looking at this teaching of Jesus in the broader context, particularly of Luke and Acts, Acts uh, Luke wrote Acts, to see what Jesus has previously taught, particularly about covetousness and greed, and what he goes on to teach and what Luke shows happened in the early church and what the Apostle Paul teaches elders about these two issues. Because this is a theme that Luke, more than any of the other Gospel writers, is acutely aware of. Money, goods, and how that relates to faith. We'll also um, have a little bit of a, a very sort of quick step back and look at the whole setup of Old Testament and New Testament in terms of um, the place of a particular people group and how that uh, contributes to this. When we've done that, I then want to come back to the challenge of these two passages, one about greed and covetousness and one about following Jesus, no matter the cost. So let's look at the tone Jesus uses towards his followers. I've already pointed out that I think he's actually very harsh towards the, um, for the people who, the man who asked him the question about splitting inheritance. He takes a very strong line against him and he tells a story, a parable, which indicts materialism. But I want you to look at how he treats his disciples. Firstly, note that it is related. What he says in to the disciples, immediately follows on what he's taught. So the version I've got in front of me says, then Jesus said to his disciples, therefore I tell you, do not worry about your life. Right? It's in the light of this question about greed and the teaching he's just given about it that he then goes on to say to those who follow him, don't worry. Don't worry about material things. Okay, so it's connected. I want you to notice the tenderness with which he speaks. You remember who is listening. The crowd who've listened into his teaching, where he's just been teaching about persecution previously for those who follow him. And then he addresses the twelve and the other, others close to them, his special disciples. And the crowd gets to listen in, but the special treatment is to those who are following Jesus. That is, people who have heard what it's going to cost to follow Jesus, and they're still there. My friends, I worked in Russia for several years and one of the uh, Central Asian ministers that uh, I worked with who came to the college where I trained 
um, spoke of how difficult it was in the particular stand, I won't tell you the name of the country he was in, but um, where he served, because the police would come and take him and other pastors, they would round them up, and he was taken once back to the police uh, station, and he was put in a cupboard, and his foot and his feet were stuck in a basin of quicklime. Now that is corrosive, caustic stuff. And he had all the skin stripped off his feet, and uh, after three days, they then released him and let him go home. Another time, when the pastors were meeting secretly, somehow or other the secret police found out about it and knew that all the wives and families would be meeting in one of the pastor's homes for a meeting. And they deliberately turned up while the men were away and they rounded up all the, all the mothers and the children and they took them all into the police cells and left them in there for a night and then took them out the next day. Now, I could tell you many, many more stories like this. This pastor knew what it was to be persecuted to following Jesus. Yet he kept coming back and doing it again and again and again. Now, I want to ask you, the disciples have just heard Jesus teaching about the persecution that they will receive if they follow him, and they are still listening. But they haven't left... They've heard his teaching and they're still willing to listen to what Jesus has to say. These people are committed people. These are people who want to follow Jesus even though they might be quaking in their boots at what it's going to cost them. So I, need, I think we need to see that Jesus is actually being tender to them because he, he addresses them. He says, life is more than food. Body is, uh, your, your body is more than clothes. Consider the ravens. They don't sow or reap. There's no storerooms or barn, yet God feeds them. And he uses these, this illustration of, of the ravens or the crows. That is, birds, and actually in Jewish culture, the ravens were ceremonially unclean birds. So, you know, they ate roadkill, basically, and so therefore the Jews weren't to have anything to do with them. But basically Jesus says, God cares for the birds, even the unclean birds, and he feeds them. How much more valuable are you to God? What's the logic? Surely he's going to look after you. And Jesus is speaking sympathetically to them. He recognises what they're facing. He recognises that they're staring down the barrel of persecution and yet they're still choosing to follow him. And so now he starts to address their fears, their concerns. And their genuine concerns. Right? My pastor friend had no food for three days while he was stuck in that cupboard in the police station. You know, that is what it means in some parts of the world even today to follow Jesus. This is not just having to cut back on having so many cappuccinos a week. This is about not eating if you follow Jesus in some circumstances. But Jesus is addressing highly motivated people, fearful people, granted, but people who want, want to follow Jesus. Verse 27, consider how the lilies, lilies grow. They do not labour or spin, but I tell you, even Solomon in all his splendour was not dressed like one of these. If that is how God clothes the grass of the field, which is here tomorrow and is uh, today and is tomorrow is thrown into the fire, how much more will he clothe you, O oh, you little faith? Now, that little phrase, O oh, you little faith, Sounds a bit harsh, doesn't it? He's addressing them as having little faith. You need to contrast that to the person, he's, to, to the person the parable he's just spoken of, who had no faith in God. He was a self-obsessed man who thought his life was about what he achieved. And Jesus says he will be judged by God that night. 
Yes, these disciples have little faith, but they have faith. Friends, I want to suggest to you that the issue is whether you have faith in Jesus or not, not how much you have. You just need to be clinging on to Jesus. You just need to be turning to Jesus, saying, Jesus, in all my fears, in all my trembling, I'm still looking to you as the one who gives life, who is the fulfilment in life, who does answer the question, is that all there is? Now, they have little faith. I want to suggest to you that actually it's a statement, a term of endearment, because look what he goes on to say. Verse 32, do not be afraid, little flock, for your father has been pleased to give you the kingdom. That expression, little flock, is a beautiful expression. Now, you can tell from my accent I'm not from these parts. I'm from Australia originally. And Australia was famous and still is for having huge herds, mobs of sheep. You can call them a flock because they're tens of thousands strong. Now, if you're a shepherd... You probably operate on a motorbike, maybe a horse. And if one of the sheep falls by the wayside and you're trying to move 10,000 of them to the sheepyards to get sheared, what do you think you'd do about the one that's fallen by the wayside? Do you think you're going to stop the whole flock, get them all, stay in one little safe place, go pick up little Fluffy, bind up his paws, whatever you call the feet of sheep? That's not how Australian shepherds operate. You know what they do? They shoot it. Because they're not concerned about a little flock where they know each sheep by name. They're just concerned about the commercial success of getting them to the shearing sheds. That is not what an ancient Near Eastern shepherd is like. Jesus is an ancient Near Eastern shepherd. Jesus has a little flock. He knows each sheep by name. He, he says in John, I call out their voice and each one comes. See, Jesus is using a term here that says to his disciples, you are precious to me. I am your shepherd and I will look after you. Yes, I've told you some scary things about persecution of following me, but I am absolutely with you in every way. I will protect you, I will lead you, I will shelter you. You're my little flock. Brothers and sisters, if you're a believer in the Lord Jesus... You are precious to Jesus. No matter what your fears, especially when you hear some of his teaching that seems to set the bar just too high, he knows your feelings. He knows your concerns and they matter to him. Now he will still point out realities. He'll still say you have little faith and the implication is good if you grew it a bit. But you have faith. And so he will look after you. So... Going back to um, 29, he says, And do not set your heart on what you will eat or drink. Do not worry about it. For the pagan world runs after all such things, and your father knows that you need them. But seek his kingdom, and these things will be given to you as well. And, And at this point, I'm going, Yes, Jesus. I believe that, and I want to believe that. I know that life is more than stuff. I know that life is even more than human relations. I know that relationship with the eternal living God, who is my creator and who is my saviour, 
That is what matters most. That alone satisfies my soul. And I want to live in that reality forever. And so what Jesus says here about not running after the things of this world because we have something greater, an eternal living relationship with our creator God, I want to say amen to. Well, then Jesus ups the ante for those particular disciples. Verse 33, sell your possessions, give to the poor, to the poor. Provide purses for yourselves that will not wear out. A treasure in heaven that will not be exhausted. I take it these are the challenging verses. Firstly, the question, is what Jesus said to the twelve something I have to do? And even if it's not... How do I provide treasure in heaven that will not be exhausted for myself? Can I be part of that? Now, friends, I think we have to stand back from this passage and look a bit more broadly in in Luke to answer this question. Because if we don't, we will either leave here today knowing what Jesus has said but not obeying it, and we don't want to be in that place, or just feeling uncomfortable. Luke, from all the Gospel writers, shows us how money and faith work together in Jesus' ministry and in the life of the church. And he picks up on these two themes, the challenge of following him and trusting him against greed. So let's go back a little bit and... Pick up first on what Jesus has to say about covetousness. So if you go back just a page or so in your Bibles to chapter 11, and the verse I want is verse 34, but I'll I'll take it from verse 33. You'll be familiar with this. No one lights a lamp and puts it in a place where it will be hidden or under a bowl. Instead, he puts it on a stand so that those who come in may see the light. Your eye is the lamp of your body. When your eyes are good, I'll come back to that word in a moment, your whole body is full of light, but when they are bad, your body also is full of darkness. See to it then that the light within you is not darkness. Now, the meaning of what Jesus says is fairly clear. Um, if you... If you're blind, if you if your eyes don't let the light in, it doesn't matter if you're surrounded by a well-lit church like we are here. You can't see it. If your eyes won't allow you to see, then there's no light within you from which you can then make your decisions about life, etc. Okay, that's his point. What's interesting is that the word translated your eyes are good and the word translated if your eyes are bad... There's no good English word that translates them. So the, the latest version of the New International Version, that was um, the revised version that just came out in 2011, the, um, the translators there helpfully put a footnote against those two words and say that the word translated here has, has comes from a financial background. It has the idea of either being generous, if you're good, or stingy, 
that is translated bad. But it doesn't make much sense to have you have a generous eye or a stingy eye, does it? But what I want you to see here is that when Jesus is talking about what, whether you can see or not, he is thinking in particular about whether you're generous or whether you're stingy, whether you hold things to yourself. And he links that to not being able to see, to blindness. That is, Jesus' point is that covetousness or greed is a sin that we're blind to. We just don't see it. Now, let me contrast it to some other sins. If I got home today and suddenly, you would not expect this to happen, I suddenly realised, oh goodness, I'm sitting in someone's BMW that I just stole and I didn't even realise it. That wouldn't happen, would it? If you steal, you're intentional about it, you know that you're going to do it. Now, you might be in denial if you get caught, but you can't do it without knowing it. Take even more sort of crass sin, adultery. You don't do adultery and don't realise you're doing it, do you? Oh, I didn't realise you weren't my wife. No, no, most sins that we do, we are aware that we are doing it. We may still go on and do it anyway, but there's an intentionality and a recognition of it. Covetousness, greed, is different. Whenever Jesus talks about it, he talks about it as though it's something we don't realise we're doing. We don't even realise that we're being greedy. Now, the advertising people plan this all the time. We live in a culture where we see images upon images all the time. And yet those images uh, then provoke us to desire those things. And we don't even realise we're doing it. Jesus says covetousness or greed is that sort of problem. People don't realise they're doing it. Now, this was a big problem in the early church. I won't uh, take you to it, we uh, don't have time. But in Acts chapter 4, we find that a, uh, a man from the tribe of Levi named Barnabas, um, he sells a plot of land and he brings the proceeds to the apostles uh, and then they use it for distributing to the poor running, running their church. Okay? Another man, um, Ananias, sees that happen, goes, ooh, I want a bit of pe- a piece of that. I presume that uh, Barnabas was held in high respect be- because of what he'd done. Ananias wants to do the same. He and his wife arrange to do the same thing, but instead of giving all the money, they only give some. And the Apostle Peter, when he uh, is aware of this, and he says to Ananias, why are you seeking to deceive the Holy Spirit? Why are you not even aware that your covetousness is something terrible. Why can't you see it? And a terrible story. He drops dead on the spot. And later on his wife comes in and the same happens. That is, God executes a terrible judgment on the church because of the sin of covetousness. Okay. What about following Jesus, though? Is Jesus requiring that all people sell everything and follow him? And you might be relieved to hear, I think the answer is explicitly no. 
Let me just go back one further step. I mentioned that Barnabas was from the tribe of Levi. Levi was a very special tribe of the 12 tribes of Israel. That was the one tribe that was not allotted land when God took them into the promised land. All the other 11 tribes, and one of them broke into two as two half-tribes, but all of those tribes, they had to financially support the Levites, that's all the, uh, who became the priestly caste, and their families, and they had two jobs, the Levites. One was to look after the tabernacle, and then later on the temple when it was built, and secondly, to instruct the people in the word of God. And so that they would not be distracted by having to run a farm to feed their family, you divide the other 11 tribes had to support this one tribe. Now you do the maths, it comes out a bit under 10% is what each tribe needs to contribute in order to support the Levites. How much is the tithe? It's 10%. Now, friends, I think that's not an accident. You see, the tithe was given so that Israel would support their Bible teachers. So that their Bible teachers didn't have to work day jobs, but could concentrate on preparing and conducting their ministries. Now, what about Jesus? Well, if you take another page, Luke chapter 10, look what he does. And uh, again, I won't read it all, but if you look in verse, uh, just beginning verse 1, after this the Lord appointed 72 others and sent them two by two ahead to every town and place where he was about to go. And he said to them, the harvest is plentiful, but the workers are few. Ask the Lord of the harvest, therefore, to send out workers into his harvest field. Okay, I'm sending out you out like lambs among wolves. Do not take a purse or bag or sandals and do not greet anyone on the road. When you enter a house, first say, peace be on this house. If a man of peace uh, is there, your peace will rest on him. If not, it will return to you. Stay in that house, eating and drinking whatever they gave you, for the worker deserves his, razor, his wages. Do not move around from house to house. So Jesus sends the 12 and another 60 on a missionary training exercise. They're to go to all the towns that he's going to go and preach in, and they're told not to take money with them, but to accept support from the places in which they're going to preach. Eat whatever's put in front of you and accept that. Don't go and look for a better place. When Jesus is training his disciples, he has a special role for them. He doesn't want them to be working. He wants others to support them so they can give themselves, in this case, to a preaching ministry. Okay, that's part of Jesus' uh, training program for the disciples. Question for you. Have you ever wondered how Jesus' ministry was funded? Just stop and think for a second. For three years, he was wandering around Israel with 12 men and presumably their families in tow and others, and they weren't working, as far as we know. They were learning, teaching, sharing Jesus and his ministry. Who was funding that? Well, Luke tells us, go back another page to Luke chapter 8, again, beginning of the chapter, verse 1. After this, Jesus travelled about from town to, and village, uh, from one town village to another, proclaiming the good news of the kingdom. So notice Jesus' priority, proclamation. The twelve came to him, and also some women who had been cured of evil spirits um, and, and diseases, Mary called Magdalene, from whom seven demons had come out, Joanna, the wife of Chusa, the manage of Herod's household, Susanna, and many others. These women were helping to support them out of their own means. 
Now, just, just note the details that Luke gives us here. Herod is the wealthiest man in the whole of north uh, of Israel. Right? He's one of the, the sons of the great King Herod, when the kingdom was divided up between three of them, and he basically rules a vast swathe of Galilee and all that sort of region. His household manager, so it's the guy in the equivalent of my position at the college, right? he runs Herod's empire. His wife is using money that her husband has earned to fund Jesus' ministry and Susanna and some others. You see, Luke is showing us that people of substantial wealth actually bankrolled Jesus' ministry so that some people could then not have to work in order to preach the word of God. Okay, fast forward to the New Testament. If you go to uh, Acts uh, chapter 18 where Paul goes to Ephesus, um, you sorry, uh, to, to Corinth, you'll find that he will only work with his hands as a tent maker because he won't receive money from the Corinthians because in their culture you provided patronage for celebrities. It was a real celebrity culture. And so he wouldn't receive money from them when he's preaching the gospel because he didn't want them to think that they could pay money to be saved. But when the poor Philippian churches, the church from Macedonia, sent a gift to him, which was very sacrificial for them to raise, he received the money from those churches and he stopped working as a tent maker and he went full-time preaching the gospel. You see, Jesus, see, Paul would accept money to be supported in ministry when it didn't affect people hearing of the free grace of Christ in the gospel. That is, there's a pattern in the New Testament that shows that some of God's people are set set apart to preach the word of God and the way that is done is by the financial partnership of individuals and churches in their ministries. Now, friends, this is where I think the rubber hits the road on Jesus' teaching. Jesus' teaching to the initial 12, sell all their possessions and follow him, was just for them in their training role. It's not for us. But the pattern that that contributes to, that there are some people who are set apart from having to work a day job so they can commit that time to preaching and teaching the word of God, is a principle from both the Old Testament with the Levites and with the New Testament church that we see Paul expects to be played out today. So come right back to what Jesus said. What does it mean today for people who want to follow Jesus to obey the teaching in this passage where he commanded his disciples to sell everything and follow him. Well, I take it this is what it means. You support gospel ministry financially. Every believer has that privilege and responsibility. In fact, that is God's expectation for how churches will be planted and established, that many people will support a few to set them apart to work full-time to proclaim the gospel. Now, I want to suggest that probably just about every person in this room is already doing that. You see, this teaching of Jesus may not be so hard after all. If you love Jesus and you give to support this church or missionary work elsewhere, you are already doing what Jesus says. And why wouldn't you want to do that? See, building God's kingdom is more important than anything in this world. 
I used to work as an engineer. I worked on, um, was offered the job of the biggest civil engineering construction project in the world in the late 1980s, early 90s, which was the Hong Kong airport. Fantastic project. Pushing half a mountain into the sea, building an airport on it, and then building one and a half mile bridge out from the mainland to it. I mean, just stunning engineering work. Now, I didn't take that because I'd earned enough money by then to go to train for full-time ministry. Do you think there's been times when I've stopped to regret, oh, I could have had the best engineering job in the world, my CV? Well, friends, actually, I haven't. You see, there is nothing better to be part of than to be helping the proclamation of the word of God which saves people from hell for eternity and brings them in to live with the Father and the Son for eternity. There is nothing better to be part of than that. And how can every single one of us be part of it? Well, one way is by financing gospel ministry. So I want to suggest to you that the easy part of today's message is to fulfill the second part of Jesus' teaching. That is, give to gospel work. You as a church, if you're facing issues down the front of expanding your ministry and and expanding your full-time staff, of funding church planters, that sort of thing, this is the sort of teaching that should inform that. I want to say to you, go for it. There's nothing more important than you can do. But the real issue for us is the hidden one, the one we can't see because we've got bad eyes. That is covetousness. We live in a society that is constantly in, in putting before us the images of enjoying this life now. And we stop thinking about eternity. And that was the problem of the man in Jesus' parable. He just thought about this life now. And what happened to him? He faced the living God and received judgment. Friends, be part of little flock that Jesus loves. He knows your fears. He knows your worries. That if you're sacrificial and you can't afford to do some of the things that you would like to do, he knows that it's difficult. But he encourages you to stand back and see the gospel endeavour, the treasure in heaven of seeing souls one to follow Christ and enjoy him forever. Why wouldn't you want to be part of that? Let's pray.